Yeah. It's so funny. All the reviews of the iPad, people were like, you can't hook up USB storage to the iPad. I'm like, <laughs> I haven't used a USB thumb drive in like five years. <laughs> like, I don't uh, care. My, my biggest complaint is the lack of SCSI. <laughs> <laughs> That's a teaser quote right there. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 8 of Acquired, the show about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today we are talking about a company that somehow, somehow, David, we have not covered on the show yet, Netflix. And we're breaking this one into two parts. Today we'll be covering the founding of the company up through the IPO and the waning years of their DVD business. And then next episode, we'll pick up at the takeoff of streaming and original content. So David, I could not believe this when diving in that the Netflix IPO was 16 years ago and it was founded 21 years ago. Yeah, crazy. All these fang companies, they're getting old. I know. I mean, I just, I did not realize that it was a pre.com bubble. In my head, it was sort of like Facebook era, not Google era or Amazon era. Well, this is why we have to do this as a two-parter because, uh, you know, we, when we first started researching this, we, we didn't think of it that way, but like there really are two different companies here. There's Netflix pre-streaming and Netflix post-streaming. We're going to cover the pre-streaming today. Well, listeners, we announced on the last episode that we had formally launched the Acquired Limited Partner Program, and we've been totally floored by how many of you have joined our LP community and are listening to the bonus show. So if you'd like to join us and get an extra episode in between every normal Acquired show, you can click the link in the show notes to join and support the show for $5 a month, or go to kimberlite.fm slash acquired. That's K-I-M-B-E-R-L-I-T-E dot F-M slash acquired. On last week's bonus show episode, we talked about the elusive concept of product market fit and the practices, structures, and mindsets that successful companies do differently before and after this stage. All right, well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what, 
200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa. On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. All right, David, you're ready to take us in with the acquisition, or I suppose the IPO history <laughs> and facts. Uh, well, there will be lots of acquisition offers back and forth as we go here. But uh, There were, I, which uh, I didn't know until I started reading. Uh, Dave and I both read this. Uh, There's a great book. By Gina Keating called Netflixed. Netflixed. Yeah. This is really fun. I, when we were discussing what episode to do uh, for this one, we were like, okay, we're getting kind of towards the end of season three. We want to do like a, a big, important, splashy episode. Let's do one of the fang companies, Netflix. I thought, you know, Netflix seems pretty straightforward. Like Reed Hastings, like very solid dude, you know, is for sure. But like, very, you know, it doesn't seem controversial. Like this seems pretty straightforward. As always with these companies, once Acquired shows up on the scene, there is... So much more to the story. <laughs> there is. All right. Stop here. teasing us and go in. All right. All right. Okay. <laughs> so as we mentioned up front, this is part one. We're going to cover Netflix from founding through about 2009 on this episode. Part two, next time, we're going to go 2010 to the present. But let's start with the founding. So as I was alluding to, most people know or think they know the founding story of Netflix. Nothing too controversial. It's the classic Silicon Valley startup story. We go back to 1997, a successful former enterprise software guy from Santa Cruz, of all places, uh, is fed up with movie rental late fees. Uh, these are the VHS days still, and kind of sees the power of the coming wave of the internet, sees Amazon that's taking off, sees the potential to disrupt bricks and mortar retail, and starts what would become Netflix and, and becomes himself, you know, paragon of Silicon Valley, statesman. Of course, I'm talking about Mark Randolph, <laughs> not Reed Hastings. Uh, this is a true statement, the illustrious CEO of Netflix. The illustrious CEO of Netflix. It was, I, I texted Ben when we started researching this and, and reading Netflix. The parallels to Tesla here are like unreal. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Yeah, so Mark Randolph, the reason that is true is he was the CEO of Netflix for the first year while Reed Hastings was finishing up uh, graduate school at Stanford. Yes, but really he was the founder and, and CEO of Netflix. I think it was closer to two, but I'll have to go through my notes here as we as we dig through. Let me give you two other wild Mark Randolph facts from his background. One is that he helped to found Macworld Magazine. Yes. Love that. And two is he is currently on the board of Chubby's Shorts. Yes, yes. And um, Looker, I believe, data analytics tool. And, and Looker actually came out of Netflix, I think, which would make sense. Okay, so here is the official story. If you listen to Reed Hastings, if you listen to 
Netflix, the the official founding story, the lore. We're going to give you that. Then we're going to tell you the true story. So official story, Reed Hastings, he has been a successful technology entrepreneur in the enterprise space, and he has an epiphany for what would become Netflix. He's returning an overdue movie to his local video store. Now, originally, the version of this story that he would tell is he was returning it to a blockbuster that gets changed not to a blockbuster after a lawsuit between blockbuster and Netflix. And you know how your founding story can just change. Yes, just change. How it can just not (laughs) just change whether it was true or not. Uh, We've seen this many times. So he's, he's returned the movie to the local video store and he's so fed up. He comes up with this magical subscription model alternative when he's on a treadmill at the gym. This isn't just like Lord, like I'm actually here. I'm going to quote from Reed Hastings saying in print to fortune magazine in 2009, Quote, the genesis of Netflix came in 1997 when I got this late fee, about $40 for Apollo 13. Remember Apollo 13? (laughs) So good. Great film. Uh, I remember the fee because I was embarrassed about it. That was back in the VHS days, and it got me thinking that there's a big market out there. I didn't know about DVDs, and then a friend of mine told me they were coming, and I ran out to Tower Records in Santa Cruz, California, and mailed CDs to myself just a disc in an envelope. It was a long 24 hours until the mail arrived back at my house. I ripped them open and they were all in great shape. That was the big excitement point. <laughs> another another fun element on this story is the reason that he talks about being on the treadmill is because uh, he, he also talks about how the gym memberships, you pay monthly whether you sort of use it or not. And he was like, oh, I can totally apply that. It was like the very same day that I was upset about my late fee for Apollo 13. I happened to be going to the gym later thinking about their business model. And it's like this completely convoluted apocryphal story invented purely to explain like what is the Netflix business model and what was the opportunity to be found. You know, we, we've talked about this a bunch on the show, but like, I actually don't think there's anything wrong with this because especially in the early days of a company, you need to communicate your value prop and stories are how you do that. So, yeah. um, you know, and this something is, like this happened. It just like, wasn't as clean. Yeah. So, okay. What's the real story? One note as we dive in here, it is helpful to be familiar with Bay Area geography when discussing uh, Netflix. So for those of you who are, you will intimately understand this. For those of you who aren't, we will try and guide you along the way. So it was 1997. Reed Hastings was involved, but as also, of course, was Mark Randolph. And they knew each other because they worked together at a company called Pure Atria, uh, formerly Pure Software in Sunnyvale, California, which merged with Atria, which merged with Atria. Yeah. So what was what was this company? Uh, It was a publicly traded company. It made bug detection software for developers. Tools company, Ben. (laughs) We we should also say this was Reed Hastings. He founded this company. Also, he founded Pure Software. And for Reed, this was his second job. He did a a job for three years and then decided, I'm going to start a company. David, I don't know if you're, are you going to touch on his his background before starting Pure? Not really. Not really. So go for it. All right. So uh, Reed Hastings is like an unbelievable human being. So he went to school to join the Marines and ended up dropping out instead to completely flip tracks and join the Peace Corps. And after he finished the Peace Corps, went and took his first job. Then his his second job was um, starting Pure. And in between, he did a master's in CS at Stanford. I think he went to Bowdoin undergrad on the East Coast. I think. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how he got out to the Valley. So he's running Pure. 
it's going well. It was sort of predicated on a, a simple notion that he had around building a better debugger. He's starting to amass a large team. You know, they're they're taking all this money. They're getting ready to go public. He tells the board, hey, I want to not be CEO of this company. I, I've never been a manager. You know, it's kind of like, I think for the benefit of myself and all the other shareholders, we really should get a CEO. The board says, no, you should remain CEO. And he ends up basically learning on the fly and then, you know, successfully manages to both IPO this company and then merge it with Atria. Such like the opposite of what was usually (laughs) what boards were usually doing in the day and age, (laughs) which was firing CEOs as soon as they humanly could or firing founders. Okay, so as Ben alluded to, Pure Atria at this point is publicly traded. It's basically a roll up. They'd acquired Atria. They'd acquired a bunch of companies that are all in the space. They're rolling up and consolidating. Randolph, Mark Randolph, had been at one of the com- small companies that Pure Atria had acquired. Um, and after the acquisition, he read uh, kind of takes a liking to him and he gets promoted. He becomes head of marketing for the whole combined company. So they're working pretty closely together. So it's 1997. One final piece of this roll-up is happening, though, and that's the biggest piece, which is there's a huge merger that's about to happen between Pure and Rational Software, um, which is the biggest competitor in the space. They've just announced they're going to merge public-to-public merger. It is actually going to be the largest merger in Silicon Valley history at that point in 1997, valued at just under a billion dollars. Yeah, (laughs) cute. (laughs) Cute, just under a billion dollars. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And Reed Hastings is finally going to get his wish. He's going to be fired as CEO. Not fired, but he's he's going to be redundant. He's not going to stay with the company. Uh, neither is Randolph. And it's interesting to note here, uh, Hastings is really bummed about what has happened to the culture. And it's important to think about as we talk about Netflix later. Hastings says that Pure, like a lot of these other companies, went from being a heat-filled, everybody-wants-to-be-here place to a dronish, and I'm quoting here, when does the day end sausage factory? <laughs> and he says, we got more bureaucratic as we grew. Um, and, and his thinking at that time is, whatever I do in the future, when the next thing I have to start, we have to think of systems so that we don't end up like that. Yeah, and that will come back into play. Reed is about to become hugely wealthy. Like he's still very young, hugely wealthy. And and his plan is to basically ride off into the sunset. He's reapplied to Stanford, um, this time to do the graduate program in education, which is a fantastic program. By the way, a lot of people do GSB and uh, the education masters jointly. Reed's going to go do this one-year grad program in education with the intention of he's going to become an education-focused philanthropist for the rest of his life. Randolph, though, he he's not so, you know, <laughs> not about to become so wealthy. He, he has to keep working. So he decides what he wants to do is he wants to start a company. And he really admires Amazon, um, which is public at this point, been around for a few years. And he thinks that there's a really good opportunity to do just like Bezos was thinking. He was looking at all the categories he could attack. He chose books. Randolph thinks, well, I can just choose another category and run the same Amazon playbook. And it just so happens that in addition to working together, Reed and Mark both live in Santa Cruz. So this, as I said, Bay Area geography is going to become important. Santa Cruz is a sleepy little university slash beach slash surfer town (laughs) over the Santa Cruz mountains, which separate uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, The valley is on the inland side of the mountains from the Pacific Ocean. Santa Cruz is on the ocean side. The mountains are awesome and it's beautiful, but like they're very high and it is very remote. Like if you live in Santa Cruz, you do not live in Silicon Valley (laughs) and it takes about an hour to commute back and forth. But just like the whole vibe is like beach town, surfer town, not not, you know, everything we think of as Silicon Valley. So as a result, Reed and Mark are often carpooling 
together back and forth between Sunnyvale, where Pierre is based, and Santa Cruz. And so Randolph just starts like spitballing ideas with Reed during their car rides. He's like, what about this category? What about that category? What about that category? (laughs) And he's convinced he wants to do this. So he starts a shell company. He calls it Kibble Inc. Because the idea is get the dogs to eat the dog food. So Kibble Inc. Dog food. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Um, He starts the shell company. They're spitballing stuff. He starts thinking about, as Ben alluded to, he'd worked at Macworld. He had also worked in the direct mail industry. That's how he got into marketing. He's presumably, we don't know this for a fact, but because of that, very familiar with the AOL, Prodigy, CompuServe, customer acquisition techniques that I think we've referred to in the past of uh, just mailing out tons and tons of CDs (laughs) to potential customers. I mean, how many... AOL CDs did you have mailed to your house back in the day? Oh my gosh. And the best thing was every time you'd go to like a movie theater or something, there'd just be another box full of them at the desk. <laughs> the whole country in like, you know, when would this have been like 95 to 99 was just saturated with AOL coasters. <laughs> I'm um, somewhere now. Well, the, the important thing that I want to say about Randolph here is it basically his background, but you know, before Puratria, he's a publishing guy. He knows the publishing industry inside and out and kind of stacked on top of that. He's a data and analytics guy, which didn't really exist in meaningful form. You know, there was no digital data and analytics then. So he was frequently tasked with things like surveying audience and trying to understand who are our readers. His philosophy, as he's spitballing a lot of these different ideas here, is thinking about how can we automatically, probably through the user interface of some product, build a, a data and analytics suite? And how can we build sort of intelligence into the UI to automatically do things that make the experience of consuming better? It's funny to see all these different threads that become massive pillars of Netflix today um, that are in sort of the backgrounds of these founders. Like you said, those become the pillars of, of Netflix from Mark Randolph's <laughs> history and background to Netflix today. So inspired by this, he hears about this coming new video format called DVD. It's just, just getting launched. It's in the the movie studios and electronics manufacturers are just rolling it out. It's being launched in a few test markets. Um, and of course, DVDs come on optical discs that are the same form factor as a CD. And so Randolph's like, oh, well, maybe we can uh, mail these things. Um, so they do go, he does go to um, a local record store, not Tower Records in Santa Cruz, uh, buys a CD, goes to a gift card, buys a um, very like large like birthday card <laughs> and stuffs the CD in it and mails it to Reed Hastings' house. The next you know day or two when they're meeting to commute together, Reed's got the mail. Is it going to come? Is it going to yeah, come? Is it going to come? He's, <laughs> he's got the envelope and he's like, it came. It's fine. <laughs> Dude, this this blew my mind when I read this story. Today, when we think about the old Netflix, we're like, oh, man, it started in that era of DVDs as if it was so long ago. It started before DVDs, and they had to proxy, like, can we mail DVDs by mailing a CD? Because neither of them had ever touched a DVD before when they had this idea. I mean, talk about, like, being on the very tip of a wave and then uh, and then sort of riding it the whole way. Like, they were betting that DVD was going to succeed and that because the, they evaluated would this work with tapes and they were like, nope, shipping costs are too high. Shipping costs are too high and just logistically, like, you got to store them and catalog, like, the CDs are tiny, although not as tiny as bits. So, Netflix it's it's boring it's off to the races so so what happens reed is like great 
I'm going off to Stanford, um, but I've got all this money. I, I think I'm going to dabble in angel investing. Um, I'll fund this company. So uh, just like Elon did with Tesla, Reed leads the first round of funding in Kibble Inc., uh, which uh, in a little bit becomes Netflix. Reed invests $2 million. Randolph becomes the CEO. Reed is just an investor and on the board. They recruit the initial team. They set up their first office in Scotts Valley, which is still on the Santa Cruz side of the mountains, just a little bit north of the town of Santa Cruz. And the idea is, yep, we're running the Amazon playbook, except instead of attacking Borders and Barnes and Noble, we are attacking Blockbuster. It turns out that unsurprisingly, it's actually a pretty good idea. <laughs> so the home video industry at this point is now bigger than box office for uh, for film and television, um, or I guess mostly film at this point. It's enormous. And the rental segment, so there's both sales and rental uh, of home video, the rental segment is completely dominated by Blockbuster. There's Hollywood Video and a few others, but like Blockbuster is the, the 800-pound gorilla. I want to quote the S1 here because for, for entrepreneurs out there who are listening, the moral of this story is you never get to stop justifying your market size to investors. <laughs> it's going to be in your seed pitch deck. It's going to be in your A pitch deck. And the second paragraph of the S1 and when Netflix goes public, the first paragraph describes what they do. The second paragraph is, in 2001, domestic consumers spent more than $32 billion on in-home filmed entertainment, representing approximately 80% of filmed entertainment, blah, blah, blah. Goes on to talk about exactly what David just said, that the, the largest portion is rental. I was reading the S1 and I was just chuckling that like, the story at any stage is always the same. What do you do? Why could it be huge? How Why big is, is your it important? <laughs> then how are you differentiated? Yeah, like it just, it never ends. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Quick aside, because uh, I think there's an important point here. This whole business of movie rentals is in the first iteration of Netflix's business and, and the blockbuster business is enabled by a Supreme Court ruling around copyright law of what's called the first sale doctrine. Um, and it basically says that once you buy a copy of any copyrighted work, whether that's a book or a movie or whatever, you can then do whatever you want with it. You can resell it. You can rent it out like it's yours. You have then cleared the copyright that was established well before any of these businesses. But the important point in here is that like regulatory issues and and lobbying and getting regulatory issues favorable to your business are very, very important. I feel like. Silicon Valley now knows that, but for a long time forgot that. And like this whole industry is enabled by a Supreme Court ruling. And and fortunately, in a very sort of Bezos way, where he, Bezos always credits the uh, infrastructure that was laid before him that allowed the company to exist, the internet, um, UPS, et cetera. Like, you know, this wouldn't have been possible if what they had to do was go and lobby and get laws changed at the outset. Uh, infrastructure had been been laid for them. Go vote. It's important. <laughs> Hopefully you already <laughs> voted in this, these elections. Yeah. I assumed they had to pay some form of royalty back to the content holder every time they r rented it. I mean, the, then Blockbuster, like before Netflix comes along and you're just fat and happy Blockbuster, that's kind of an amazing business. I mean, you buy this little store. It's not that big of square footage. You pay 15 to $18 or whatever for a movie, and then you rent it out for, what, like three $3, and you rent it... 50 times or something. It's an awesome. It's business. the same business as scooters today. You know, you buy a scooter for 300 bucks, you rent it for a couple bucks per ride and you do thousands of rides and that's a good business. <laughs>
Okay, so they're getting started. Randolph goes to a conference in Las Vegas, the Software Video Conference. He meets a guy named Mitch Lowe, who's going to come back into the story later. Mitch owns a 10-store video rental chain, small rental chain in Marin County, just north of San Francisco, again, Bay Area geography. This is about as far on the opposite end of the Bay Area as you can get from Santa Cruz. Uh, We're talking like two and a half hour drive with no traffic. Mitch is entrepreneurial. He owns these video rental stores, but he's also working on a a software tool, a CRM tool for video rental stores. And Randolph's like, oh man, you are like the industry expert. Like I need you to come in and like join the team. He eventually persuades him to do so. I assume Mitch then moves from Marin to Santa Cruz because you cannot do that commute every day. But he joins as the video acquisition chief. So he's now going to be in charge of like inventory and stocking and like what what dvds netflix is going to buy and so it's kind of just like stitch fix like that we saw there like getting that early industry dna on the team like really has a big impact together they and and they'd hired a couple people from pure a couple folks that they'd worked with in the marketing department there they all set on the settle on netflix as the name and uh, ben ben texted me the original logo we're gonna have to tweet this and link to it in the show notes let's just so say awesome. you don't want enterprise marketing people designing your consumer product uh branding and and logo i think i think show notes can be full html so we'll just try and embed this image in the show notes if you swipe over or tap over to it it is awesome and the best thing is it was used (laughs) awesomely awful (laughs) it was 97 to 2000 and you know netflix on their next rev kind of nailed it and is basically the same logo they use today except with a little bit of a nice brand refresh but like the (laughs) the first one is it's got this little like swooshy thing and it's very late 90s. Yeah. So it, it's purple. It, it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> um, okay. Netflix. So what do they do? This is this is brilliant. And, and I think this is driven by, by Mitch Lowe. DVDs are just getting launched. Like they're like most people don't have it. Player machines don't exist out there. How do they do like get their initial customers, do initial customer feedback? They they borrow a page, future page from Xiaomi. They go online into product discussion forums of enthusiasts for like movie technology and like dvd product forums and they just start talking about netflix there and like people because well, these it. things are like 600 bucks like getting a dvd player was like uh ooh, i'm buying it's like a over a thousand bucks at this point Jeez. in 1997 dollars so like the people who are buying these things are super techie super early adopters like the perfect market to adopt netflix and, and give you know feedback here isn't it 640 by 480 like it's there's not oh, a lot of that, pixels like yeah uh, i think that i think it might even be less like you know ugh, it's for show research here we didn't even go back and watch dvds like i don't i don't have a dvd drive anywhere i don't know if you do like no i sold my old xbox and have no i actually have no means to play any discs which yeah is, you know me neither huh well uh, wait for stay tuned for part two um so they officially launched the product in april 1998 and remember they've been building all this momentum and uh you know early customer lists from these product forums and it's just like they nail it like the market is still tiny but like (laughs) talk about product market fit on day one the servers crash there's tons of demand you could buy dvds from them right yes you could both buy and rent yeah 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 
I mean, the magic that they came up with was the business model of rather than paying per DVD, you just pay a certain amount and then it, you can either keep two or keep three fee, depending yeah. on what, what plan you opt into. But I didn't realize when they started, you could also just order DVDs from them and pay for them and keep them. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Uh, well, th- that part of the business is going to come up again in, in, in one sec. The other perfect part of the timing here is like the consumer electronics manufacturers were so powerful this time. We're talking Sony, Toshiba, Pan sonic like all these japanese and some u.s i forget which ones are u.s companies anyway like these guys are dominant they're so and and they know that dvd machines like that's their next drug that they're gonna sell u.s consumers um so they're pushing it hard best buy is pushing it hard circuit city's pushing it hard netflix goes and they do deals with these consumer electronics manufacturers to get netflix promo coupons inserted into the boxes with dvd players like talk about an awesome distribution hack like it doesn't get it any better than that uh and this was a big part of their customer acquisition for many many years and it works like uh, amazingly the the only downside is they're giving away a free month of netflix uh as the promotion um that ends up coming back to bite them in terms of that cost them a lot of money um which we'll see in a sec blockbuster while all this is going on they're initially like oh dvds that's like nobody's going to use that like you know we're just going to stick with vhs (laughs) it feels short-sighted to me in a different way than we normally rip on big companies that get disrupted like if you were to tell blockbuster at that time streaming video on the internet will be the thing that ends you like it's not that surprising for me that they would scoff at that and like it just didn't feel like it just felt like that was too far away and would people actually do that and but like just switching the size of the box and like switching to a thing that plays videos better and like come on all electronics come down over time how could how could they not believe that this was going to be a big change for their business well okay so let's be really fair to blockbuster here so i went into research here thinking blockbuster oh my god these guys are idiots like this is like you know classic case of corporate hubris getting disrupted not the case at all blockbuster management until the very end as we'll see is actually super competent and like really good and the reason here that they didn't go into the market as fast as netflix is there was a format war so dvd and divix were battling it out against one another and it wasn't clear in the beginning who was gonna win whoa i forgot about divix yeah divix um that's like way lesser known than even like Betamax or HD DVD or any of these alternatives. It was the Betamax of, of the, the optical disc era. So Blockbuster was kind of waiting on the sidelines to see what would happen before they made the big bet and threw their weight behind it. Uh, Netflix bet the company on DVD over DivX. I don't know why. Maybe they just were like, oh, DVD, <laughs> we'll go with that. Um, but fortunately, it worked. Um, so that's and DivX ended up becoming like a digital, like a not stream, but like fi- it was like a yeah, file it was like format. a file encoder format. And I used to have like a DivX player on my Mac that I could like play DivX files if I was downloading them from uh, the back of a truck somewhere. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, the early two thousands. <laughs> so blockbuster isn't in the dvd game yet netflix is the only game in town they've got promos in all the boxes with the players that are that are shipping the first four months after launch they do twenty thousand rentals they're already at a million dollar revenue run rate like that's super impressive even today like startup you launch you're at a million dollar revenue run rate four months in like super impressive and super capital efficient considering they were buying all these dvds like i can't remember what did they they had only raised the money from reed to date right yeah only the two million dollars well <laughs> capital efficient 
yes, yes, yes. But with all this growth, like they are just burning huge. Like, like they're, they're, they're really in a rock and a hard place because they have to buy the DVDs. That's capital efficient. But the operations, this is why giving away those free rentals, the free month of rentals, which is going to end up being a couple, like they have to package these things in mailers. They have to ship them. They have to do all the labor to do that. They have to do the customer support. It gets really expensive to operate this. And the more you grow, the more expensive it gets. They realize that the the <laughs> Netflix actually had this perverse aspect of their business model in the DVD streaming era that their very best customers who use them the most cost them the most money. So they uh, realized pretty early you on. You mean before the streaming era? Just before, the oh yeah, before the, in the yeah. DVD era. Because if you're constantly rotating discs in and out, you're costing Netflix a lot of money and operations to do that. So they they figure out that they need to funnel customers to really obscure niches of like back catalog titles <laughs> because those don't turn over as much. Like I might really love some like random thing. It's unlikely somebody else does. So I'm going to rent that, keep it for a long time. And then I don't have other demand for that, uh, that unit. So that's how they start working on the recommendation algorithm and the personalization. As a result, it's not big new releases that drive Netflix in the early days. It's the back catalog. So Bollywood movies become huge. <laughs> and this is funny. Um, softcore pornography becomes huge. As with all video formats, uh, the uh, aphorism that pornography drives innovation, um, also true here. It's going to come back in a sec. So they raise a Series A. There is a $6 million Series A from IVP uh, in August 1998 to finance all of this. Reed is still finishing up at Stanford. He's just the investor, the angel investor. He's just on the board. He's not super involved. Uh, once he finishes his master's, he gets into you know education philanthropy as he wanted to. He also starts this thing called TechNet, um, which is a lobbying group for the technology industry. It's still the largest tech industry lobbying group. I didn't realize Reed Hastings started it. Like, pretty cool. Um, so he starts that. He's running that. January 1999, a couple things happen. One, there's some, uh, Reed is very liberal in his politics and other people in tech, at least at that point in time, and still weren't. And they were like, you're running this lobbying group. You're very liberal. Like, I'm conservative. Like, this should be more bipartisan. So Reed ends up leaving TechNet. He wants to get back into the entrepreneurial game. He's like, oh, Netflix, my angel investment is kind of working. I'm going to go spend some more time there. <laughs> he basically just shows up and announces like, okay, now I'm going to be co-CEO with Randolph here. <laughs> and uh, uh, Randolph is apparently not super super happy about this but like you know the company's growing so and reed is great so like everybody kind of gets along and they initially divvied up that randolph's going to be in charge of marketing and content acquisition and reed is going to be in charge of engineering and, and ops this is where reed really starts building like a world-class technical team technical and ops team at, at netflix i think this is the time when they actually name their algorithm the cinematch and they start having a company-wide metric around uh, what percentage of the long tail of the DVDs are we actually successfully managing to uh, get people to use their use one of their slots on. Yep, yep. Obviously, we'll get into the Netflix the challenge way later, but um, this is really when it starts to become really, in a lot of ways, pioneering modern data science and, and data engineering. 
Yep. And remember, they're still in Santa Cruz in Scotts Valley at this point. <laughs> so Reed shows up and he's like, okay, a few things need to change around here. <laughs> so one, even though they just raised this Series A, they're still burning cash so fast because they're growing so quickly. They realize they need to fundraise again really quickly or like do something or they're going to go bankrupt. So the first thing that the board and Reed and Mark think is like, uh, we should maybe we should just sell the company, like do a quick flip here. They and who would be the natural acquirer? None other than the inspiration for the company, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> so the two of them fly up to Seattle. They meet with Bezos. This is uh, this is 1998 still, I believe. Bezos is like, oh, you know, this is interesting. Okay, and Amazon is public. They've made some acquisitions at this point. Um, Bezos is like, I'll give you $12 million to buy the company, um, which I assume must have been right around the post money for, uh, or maybe even less than the post of the raise that they just did. And Netflix is like, come on, like, no. <laughs> we're, we're not going to sell the company. But how about we do a, a cross-promotion deal with you guys where we've got this business where we're selling DVDs. Um, we're realizing that that's not super core to, to our subscription model. Um, how about we give you that? So whenever anybody on any Netflix customers want to buy DVDs, we'll just kick them over to Amazon to buy DVDs. Um, and in exchange, I think this happened to me once. Oh, really? I, I'm now like recalling it was in that era of Amazon doing these weird partnerships, like when yes, Toys R Us and Target was and like, all that. yeah, yeah. Oh, oh man, it's a crazy imagining Amazon today doing some gigantic co-branded corner of their their store like that. Serious? Well, especially given what we'll see in part two with Amazon and, and video. So in return, Amazon is going to advertise Netflix on the homepage. <laughs> Remember, this is the era of portals, which and is Yahoo now the most and, valuable yeah. real estate in technology. Yeah crazy so that happens on the back of that they start fundraising and as they go out to fundraise reed is like okay like i'm the successful past entrepreneur here i'm going to take over as the only ceo i'm going to do this fundraise. i need to be the face of the company come on investors at this point need to bet that i'm going to do it again yeah. yep uh he also he's like and we got to move out of Santa Cruz. <laughs> We're going to move to Silicon Valley. So they compromise. They move to Silicon Valley, technically, but they move to Los Gatos, which is like as far south as you can possibly get in Silicon Valley. So probably another 30 plus minutes south of Palo Alto and Mountain View, I would say. And Netflix is still there today. And lots of people, um, especially as the company's grown, now live in San Francisco and work in Los Gatos and spend two hours a day on, on 101 commuting. Incredible. This is a good time. So it's a pretty special company to work for. When you think about why do people do this two-hour commute, I'm actually not sure when this notorious deck uh, started in its first revision, but the Netflix culture is extremely unique. In the early days, and I don't know if the early days was right around this time or even earlier, Hastings decided that he needed to be able to communicate to new hires all the ways that they were very different and very opinionated in a culture, and he wanted to preserve this in a way that would scale because it, it didn't at his last company. To illustrate the point, there's two interesting things that I'll mention from Netflix's culture, one of which is that uh, Hastings doesn't ever refer to it as a family. It's it's not welcome to the family. The uh, more appropriate analogy is a sports team that we don't have unconditional love for each other. We have conditional love. We have really high standards and it's a really high performing team. And to the degree that in a family, you can sort of love someone, even if they're not uh, uh, an amazing employee on a team, you don't. The second tidbit is that out of respect for everyone else on the team, they hold every seat to a really high regard. And so 
you you will be let go from the company if you are not performing really well. And it's not because they're punishing you for that or anything. It's out of respect to everyone else who is still at the company because they deserve to work with an A player. And they say, they take the burden on this and say, we're extremely generous with severance, but uh, we're extremely opinionated that you know you need to be an extremely high performer to have that seat. Otherwise, you need to make it available for someone else out of fairness. I've always thought like the way that all this is sort of like phrased and they came up with this is so both opinionated and thoughtful and every little detail considered. Now, uh, Hastings has released the deck on SlideShare and I think it might be like the number one viewed yeah. uh, deck on SlideShare. Many years ago, it was released on SlideShare and it's still... Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. 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 And so like it was this internal thing that they evolved over and over and over and then finally decided we should make this available for public consumption because it's a, gr- a great recruiting tool. Oh. I mean, for the right set of people like that, that's why they did it. You yeah. Know, it's moth <laughs> to a flame. Yeah. 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 So one of the things that makes them different. You see Reed's personal history and, and shaping reflected in this culture, like as all companies, right? Or like, like my partner Riley at Wave is uh, he always says like company cultures are like reflections of pure reflections of the founder, you know, personalities. And, uh, you know, Reed is a guy who was in ROTC was going to join the Marines and then instead did the Peace Corps and then, you know, went to Silicon Valley and became an engineer and then a CEO and then a philanthropist. And like, it, it's just all like these, this dichotomy, like baked in there. Very cool. In addition to all of those things, he is also a fundraising machine. Remember, he has orchestrated <laughs> the largest merger in Silicon Valley history at this point. So basically every VC, and this is before the the dot-com crash, they're like, oh, Reed Hastings, you're raising? Like, how much money can I give you? <laughs> um, he raises, within a few months, raises $100 million. <laughs> or, or rephrased uh, from our last uh, LP bonus show, how large of a percentage ownership can I have in your company? Yes, exactly. And I don't <laughs> care what the check size is. Um, <laughs> right, right. He raises $100 million, mostly from TCV. Uh, and we'll see TCV ends up being a h- enormous shareholder in Netflix um, and IPO and several other firms. Uh, one of the first hires he makes after becoming full CEO of the company is acquired superhero who has showed up <laughs> in uh, in uh, at least one other episode, episode, probably many more. Barry McCarthy, who he hires as CFO of Netflix. And Barry becomes critical to netflix's success um and uh then does his short detour at clinkle <laughs> before going to spotify yeah fast forward through that or uh dvd skip through that so barry's fame from folks who've listened to the uh the spotify episode is that he's the guy who's sort of uh conceived of and then executed the plan for the direct listing where where spotify did not actually issue new shares at ipo they had a direct listing huge huge hire as well as several other folks, they hired Tom Dillon from Seagate to run ops for the company. Remember, ops is super important here. And then together, this lead, new leadership team, like they all kind of figure out, like uh, sort of similar to Amazon and Prime, that delivery speed for rentals, movie rentals, when DVD rentals, when you order them, is huge. And that the faster they can get from you clicking a rental online on Netflix to getting the DVD in your mailbox. That drives customer loyalty, that drives retention, but most importantly, that drives word of mouth uh, and organic distribution. Like when you click it's rent kind of a magical experience. and you get, remember this is, yeah, 1998, 99, you get that DVD in your mailbox the next day, you're going to tell all your friends. It's funny like how archaic it feels now because now I'm like, how could it not be, you know, actually instant? But I, I am remembering 
trying to think what year it was, probably 2000, it was the summer of 2008, because I was doing my internship in, uh, in North Carolina for Cisco, and my roommates and I did a Netflix plan for our apartment, because uh, none of us were 21 yet, and so we were like, what do we do every day after work? And so we just got a really fat Netflix plan. <laughs> and like, it was pretty amazing that like, you, uh, we'd hear about a movie from a friend over the weekend, we'd like click the button, and then we were watching it Tuesday night, and sometimes even Monday night. And it's it's like, it's it's funny to describe that as a magical experience, but it totally was. And this is all thanks to Dylan and McCarthy and 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 Reed and and then the rest of company of the company, of course. But they figured this out and they realized that this is the key, one of the key levers to their business. So they start building distribution centers, not just like randomly, like oh, we're going to build them in big cities and geographical density. They start like they get really analytical about it. Like, where's our customer base? Where's it growing? Where are our word of mouth hotspots? Let's build distribution centers close to them and get these DVDs to them as fast as possible and grow demand kind of organically this way. Also helps them better manage inventory, uh, everything. And then, of course, this leads to the recommendation algorithm becoming super, super important. Did you ever manage your Netflix queue? I, I'm like remembering old features now that were like critically important to the service. Did you Were you, were you a subscriber back then? No, I subscribed way late. I'm not, I don't watch a ton of movies. So uh, it was, I was not in the target market. I remember being obsessed and actually comparing my queue with friends. There was two things that were important to like compare with friends. One was like all my ratings. I'm like a completionist. When Twitter was not algorithmic, I tried to read every tweet. And I think I did between like 2009 and like 2017. And so like I tried to like rate every movie I'd ever seen and find it on Netflix and rate it. And like I had a group of friends that totally prided themselves on doing that and being very opinionated about each of these movies. And the other thing that I definitely remember is I built up this huge queue that I was constantly adjusting of like which movies were going to be sent to me when and like how much did I want to prioritize moving something through through the queue. And I thought, I mean, both of those systems were just genius because they were, I know Netflix wasn't measuring engagement, but engagement ended up being a proxy for uh, how long am I going to stay a customer? And like both of those things like lit up my brain in all the right ways of, oh, I have to go and update this piece of data on Netflix. Uh, and lay the groundwork for Netflix today and streaming. Yeah. One real quick funny aside, I mentioned um, pornography being a big part of Netflix in the early days. <laughs> Reed uh, in 2000, he gets appointed to the California Board of Education. Uh, he's like, um, we need to get out of this pornography thing. So uh, let's just uh, <laughs> let's just uh, th- th- that never happened. So another thing you will never find in Netflix history, but <laughs> did drive a bunch of their growth in the early days. OK, it's 2000. Growth is great. Everybody's high flying, high fiving. They got an A team, you know, built at the company. They filed to go public. McCarthy's going to take them public. They have 120,000 subscribers. They're shipping 800,000 DVDs a month. Everything is great. But then the dot-com crash happens <laughs> before, mm. uh, before they can actually get out and get public. They postpone the IPO. But again, they're still growing. And again, as they grow, they're burning all this capital so much so that they've burned through the $100 million that they've raised. Fortunately, the existing investors were so excited before the IPO, they wanted to buy in and get more of the company and get a pop. They invest another about $50 million before the IPO and before the crash. Turns out to be super necessary capital. But the crash happens and like they're like, I don't think we can survive. Once again, they try and offload the company and sell it. This time not to Amazon. They go to 
Blockbuster. Blockbuster. <laughs> and this yes. is where Blockbuster enters the story. So they go to Dallas, where Blockbuster is headquartered, Dallas, Texas. They meet with them and they're like, you know, we need to sell the company. We, you know, we want to sell it for 50 million. 50. This company's raised like 150 million at this point. Like, imagine if this ad- transaction had happened. Blockbuster's like, eh, you seem kind of desperate. I don't think so. We're just going to crush you. <laughs> unreal. Um, Absolutely unreal. Totally like, unreal. <laughs> so uh, for the companies that made it through the dot-com burst, you look at Amazon, you look at Netflix, you're like, wow, they were really smart, really good capital allocators, were super nimble, were able to make it through this. Like Netflix tried to get out. They were like, look, we'll just cut our losses and, and go be part of Blockbuster. Totally. And again, Blockbuster are not idiots. They're they're really not. Like they, at this point, see DVDs um, are already in the market and they also see the online subscription business model and how good it is. They're like, this is why they don't buy them. They're like, we could spend $50 million on buying you, or we could spend slightly less than that and just copy you and build you and use the Blockbuster brand. And they build Blockbuster online and which is a clone of Netflix. And it's really good. Like, you know, initially it's not so good and Netflix kind of makes fun of them, but like eventually like it gets really good. Yeah. Like, the website was terrible. There's actually a really good, I recommend, uh, uh, so friend of the show, uh, Caro over at Wondry, they, they did an episode um, or a little series called Business Wars that was about Netflix versus uh, Blockbuster. And there's some epic episodes in there about Hastings and the rest of the Netflix team sort of like loading up the Blockbuster site when it first launches and laughing at how terrible the website is and they can't even like... They got Accenture to build it. They didn't hire their own engineers and like, uh, but they overcome it. They, they actually make it good. Um, I mean, well, think about this. It's Netflix, but... But if you actually want a video tonight, you can just go return it to Blockbuster and then get a new one rather than waiting for this whole mail thing. Well, well, that comes up in one sec. So initially, Blockbuster Online is a true Netflix clone. It's separate, separate business, separate office building from Blockbuster. No attachment to the stores because they franchise the stores. So the franchisee owner of the stores, they don't want Blockbuster Online to be cannibalizing their business. So that kind of becomes an issue in a bit. Netflix, though, they're like, all right, we can't offload this thing. We're, I guess we're going to have to soldier through. So they do <laughs> this, is, this. is We're going to say these things, but like I want everybody to like really think about this. They do a 40 percent layoff, a 40 percent riff of the company. Four out of 10 people they lay off. Remember, just a couple months ago, they were going to go public and everyone was high fiving. Having lived through my first two years in the working world of the 2008 recession, like I know what this feels like, like bad times are bad. <laughs> like we have been in good times for the last, you know, 10 years. Imagine that like 40% of your coworkers just gone in one day and Netflix does this, but this is what they have to do. And the way that they did it too, he called a immediate urgent company meeting. They made this decision. He calls a, an immediate company meeting and says, of you are going to be laid off today. And then people go back to their offices to wait and see if their manager comes to talk to them or not. Harrowing. Totally harrowing. But managed about as well as you can. And, um, you know, it's just like in times like this, it's either the company's going to die because you're going to go bankrupt or you need to cut the burn. This is wartime, you know. And this was also is interesting uh, reading that Netflix book, the way that Barry McCarthy sort of was looking at this is we need to do this 
to prepare for the IPO, not only from a cash burn perspective, like we've got, I think they ended up IPOing with $15 million in the bank. Um, so they definitely needed that that mezzanine round that they thought was just going to be to uh, let those investors buy a little extra equity. But it was really about uh, what story were they going to go tell the street when mm-hmm. they when they, they were able to, to be IPO profitable in, in 2002. Yeah, and and I, I think they weren't quite profitable when they IPO'd, but it was they were on track to be profitable the next year. And you know they needed to show that even if they were a very lean organization and they needed to be to, to be in this dot-com burst era that they could still execute their business. Yep. And also when it comes to this, I mean like such kudos to again, a terrible moment, but like so many other companies would have been like, let's cut 10%. Then let's cut another 10% and like thousand cut your way into it. McCarthy and Hastings are like, no, we're cutting to the bone. We're doing it right now. This is one example. There's another example we'll get to in this episode. And then there's a third example that we're going to save for the second part of this, this Netflix set. But Reed Hastings and Netflix management are awesome at executing these like, we made a decision. We're going to go hard at it. I know it seems insane, but we have very sound logic for why it needs to happen. And it's happening. I'll foreshadow that the next two are related to... Uh, either spin-offs or spin-outs from Netflix. <laughs> Indeed. Well, okay. Uh, the next year, May 2002, they finally do the IPO. This is still nuclear winter for the tech world, um, but they need the cash. They've gotten to profitability. They're like, we're just going to do it. We're going to go public. They raise $82.5 million in their IPO at a market cap of just over $300 million. So they sell over a quarter of the company in the IPO. Ooh, I mean, like, can you imagine that these days it's like seven to 10 percent like, you know, like, yeah. ooh. well, and it's not it's they're not IPOing for three hundred million dollars. Yeah, these days either. I know. I know. Crazy. Yeah, I joked to David and I messaged last night like, wow, it's a really nice, uh, nice Series B post. Yeah, seriously. seriously. Um, but the business is capitalized right? and then, you know, they have no debt. They 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 don't need to raise any more money and they don't. Uh, they eventually do take on debt, but I believe not until the streaming era. I think they did a tiny secondary the next month mm, uh, okay. and, and just sold a little bit more um, in sort of a additional stock offering. But yeah, to, to your point, no, nothing meaningful for a while. Yeah, they're fully capitalized. So remember Randolph, the original CEO, and uh, and Lowe, the guy who was running the, the video stores in Marin. Now that the IPOs happen, they're like, okay, great. We're going to go focus on new things like initiatives within the company now. And they start testing kiosks, Netflix kiosks that they're going to put in grocery stores. And they're like, this is going to be a great new growth initiative. And Hastings and McCarthy, they're like, guys. (laughs) And actually, Hastings at first agrees about the problem they're trying to solve. So an important detail is that Netflix is convenient in a way because you don't have to leave your house, but it's inconvenient in a way that you can't have it now. Like they constantly were struggling with this existential problem of instant is not a part of our value proposition to date. And so, you know, this is sort of uh, um, Lowe and Randolph's brilliant idea of like, maybe maybe this is the way to solve instant. Yeah, maybe this is the way to solve instant. Well, maybe it is. <laughs> but eventually mccarthy and everybody they're just like guys we just did a 40 percent riff we finally got public we got to stay focused we, there are no new initiatives that we're doing right now they kill and, it and 
Mm-hmm. And wait, wait, before they kill it, though, this is great. Uh, Lo and Randolph are so obsessed with this idea. The two of them, so they've convinced a uh, grocery store, a single grocery store in Las Vegas at Smith's Grocery Chain to work with them to do this. And this is so awesomely startup-y. They decide it's not worth our investment in figuring out how to actually build a vending machine that's going to vend DVDs. So we are going to task a Netflix employee to just stand there behind a little like kiosk. It's a store within a store. After the checkout of the Smith's grocery store and just like people can come and and they will just do it manually and the employee will hand you the DVD which is just awesome so and great. to oversee do things this, that don't and, scale <laughs> I know uh, Lo and Randolph actually got uh, an apartment and moved there for a month to kind of like be a part of standing up this operation I mean they were stoked That's awesome. it, I, yeah. it is awesome uh, as we will see um, but you can also understand why McCarthy and Hastings are like, guys, guys, <laughs> not now. <laughs> the second thing that happened before they killed it is that um, Lowe went and w- talked to the CEO of McDonald's and was basically like brokering a deal. It was like, then he came back to, uh, and this, this guy freaking loved it. McDonald's was like, we want to roll this out at all of our, you know, a, a little extra revenue for the people that are hanging out in our stores we're in. And so Lowe brings this back to Hastings and Hastings is like, are you freaking kidding me? Like our first brand impression with the majority of America that doesn't use us yet is not going to be in McDonald's when they're waiting in line like that. No, absolutely not. And so part of killing it was like, look, we don't have the headcount for this. We don't uh, we can't split our focus like this. And now you're coming to me with McDonald's. All right, David, take the curtain off. What did this become and how did it become that? So. Randolph and Lowe, they're demoralized. Netflix has changed so much. Randolph, you know, he started this thing. He was CEO. They're like, you know, it's it's time for us to go. They go. Randolph gets full time into an investing, and as as we talked about, chubbies and and <laughs> and looker and all that. Lowe, he can't stop thinking about this kiosk thing. He's like, I'm gonna <laughs> make this happen. He's like, I'm gonna start a company. That company becomes Redbox. <laughs> which wild uh, wild which is now uh, an actual very significant competitor to uh netflix yeah i actually don't know what's happened to it now like does it still exist in the streaming world i think it is now part of something called outer wall uh which is uh they own uh redbox coinstar eco atm gazelle a bunch of these other things outer wall stands for the outer wall of the grocery store mm. and it was basically rolled up i think it's actually a bellevue based company yeah yeah because coinstar was in bellevue yeah 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 i think maybe coinstar expanded to become outer wall when it rolled up all this other stuff something like that but Redbox is now part of that uh that private equity family yeah crazy we want to thank our longtime friend of the show vanta the leading trust management platform Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. 
Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. Okay, so back to Netflix. We're now in March 2003. Things are going great. The company hits a million subscribers. They announced this on their earnings call. Everyone's high-fiving once again. As we'll see, this doesn't last long. McCarthy, he's like, this is great. I've gotten, landed the plane I really want to go be the CEO of my own company. I'm going to leave by the end of the year and do that. But, you know, I want to give everybody plenty of notice, want to give the street notice. Um, So he announces that. Almost immediately afterwards, Blockbuster fully launches. They've been testing. They fully launch Blockbuster online. The week that they launch Blockbuster online to the general public, Netflix market cap drops 60% in one week, (laughs) like a rock. And as we said, like it actually becomes a pretty good product. Plus, they have all the marketing power of Blockbuster. And so what happens is very quickly, all of the market of going to subscription-based online movie rentals, DVD rentals, Netflix was the only player until now. Every new customer in America who came to do this had to do Netflix. Blockbuster gets 50% of new signups. So of new people coming into the market, which is where the vast majority of the market is still coming in. Blockbuster takes 50% share immediately. Yeah. And if, if you think about that, the timing on this, so when, when Netflix IPO, they had 500,000 subscribers. It's an, interestingly, not that big of a number on the number of movies. It was 11,500 movies uh, as they say in their S one. So it's now 2003. Netflix is barely profitable. They just turned their first quarter profit. Blockbuster launches this. This is exactly at the, the crest of the DVD wave where when Netflix is reporting earnings, sort of the quarters before Blockbuster, they're like celebrating on the earnings call. Like, there is now $200 DVD players. America is buying DVD players. Our bet was right. This is just fueling our business. This is amazing timing. And so for Blockbuster to just nail it and, and, and launch it at exactly yeah. this time is this like... Is kneecapped them. Yeah, this, this uh, million subscribers that they have up from 500,000 at IPO is you know, there's, uh, what, 200 million households in the U.S. or something like that. Like, anything that happened before is irrelevant, and what matters now is new signups in the future. Yep, exactly. Not only does that happen, they've got a second problem, which they're even more worried about. They get word that Amazon, their one-time potential acquirer, is going to come into the market and is working on building a Netflix competitor. Remember, not streaming. We're still in the DVD rental market. They announced this. They're like, we got to be honest about this with the street. They announced this on their Q3 analyst call that they think Amazon is coming. They're going to get ready for it. And McCarthy says, I'm not leaving. I'm staying. I'm going to stick it out and fight here. He actually says, and I quote, on the on the investor analyst call, you don't leave your friends in the middle of a knife fight. <laughs> this is just awesome. What a hero. Uh, 
and uh, uh, and he literally like swashbuckling comes rides back in <laughs> in anticipation uh, not of, of Blockbuster not in reaction to Blockbuster but in, in anticipation of Amazon coming in because they think Amazon's going to follow the Amazon playbook and just undercut everybody on price Netflix cuts their subscription price by almost 20% for the first time it's like sub $20 for the 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 big plan yep Unfortunately, <laughs> this turns into a full-on disaster. A, Amazon actually never <laughs> ends up entering the market. They do in Europe, um, but not in the U.S. Blockbuster sees this, and they're like, oh, Netflix is starting a price war. So now Blockbuster and Netflix get locked into a price war, and Blockbuster further undercuts Netflix, and things go like haywire. Because remember, the cash burn cycle is super important here. And Blockbuster has a much healthier balance sheet at this point, too. So Blockbuster is like, wait, Netflix just cut prices? Why? Like, we can outspend them. Okay, I guess we'll cut prices. Yep. Well, they can and they can't, as we'll see. So McCarthy and, and Hasty, they're like, okay, we need to model out exactly, because Netflix has a bunch, or Blockbuster has a bunch of debt um, from their old stores, and they used to be part of Viacom, and then they'd spun out. There was a whole complicated transaction. So yes, they have resources, but they also have debt covenants. So they model out in detail what they think the blockbuster online business is, how long they think they can survive at this lower price and with all the promotions they're doing until they trigger their debt covenants. And <laughs> so they're like, okay, we think we have about six months. <laughs> David, can you go into what what debt covenants are a little bit? Debt co- if you have debt, there are agreements on the debt called covenants that basically say you have to maintain certain financial uh, health, metrics of financial health. If you don't if you trigger those debt covenants then you the lenders the people who own your debt can put you into default and push you into bankruptcy so it's like you don't want to do that now you can go back and renegotiate with them anyway lots of detail and all this happens with blockbuster and just to drive the point home and put a super fine point on the um on the cash cycle here yes there's been a million subscribers acquired they hope to acquire you know another hundred million in the future they're dramatically accelerating market expend to be able to bring people on at a faster rate every quarter than they had been before. However, since the first month is free, they make no money on people for at least a month after they acquire them, and they're spending more money than ever before to get nothing for that first month. So it's like, you know, the, to your point, that timing is tricky. Plus there's advertising dollars that you're spending to get those new customers. So what does Blockbuster do? They run a Super Bowl ad. <laughs> and Netflix is like, <laughs> oh my God. Um, but they keep cool heads. They're like, the market is still growing. We're still getting subscribers. If anything, Blockbuster is just educating the market. They don't cut prices further. They don't get further drawn into the price war. And it basically works. Because <laughs> we will see here, the if Barry McCarthy is the acquired superhero, the acquired supervillain steps into the scene here. Carl Eichen. <laughs> of Marvel fame, of uh, where else has he showed up in our episode oh, so man. far? Uh, I don't think we've talked about it. Remember Apple. he was with Apple with a while? Like this guy. Oh, my God. Hedge activist fund billionaire. Shareholder. Activist shareholder. Yeah. He gets super involved with Blockbuster. He buys about a 17, either 17 or 19% stake on the public markets in Blockbuster, starts agitating, fire, files a proxy battle to basically at the Blockbuster annual shareholder meeting to uh, elect a separate slate of board directors that are all of his cronies. He wins. Crazy. <laughs> Again, Blockbuster <laughs> is actually like 
being smart here. Their management is actually pretty good. Carl Icahn just like replaces the whole board with like Icahn cronies. He starts bringing his son to board meetings. Who's just like some 26 year old dude. And he's like, you should give product feedback. (laughs) Yeah. It's insane. insane. But for the the, the blockbuster management, they managed to kind of like keep things on track and they decide with all this going on, they need to raise prices back up. Um, So Netflix and blockbuster both raise prices back up. The tide is rising. Both companies are coexisting here in the market. Things go pretty well. Netflix is still the leader. They end 2005 now. They have over 4 million subscribers. They have a market cap of over a billion and a half. So up, what's that, 5x from the IPO three years ago. They launched the Netflix prize in 2006 that you alluded to, which is, we probably don't have time to cover it in a full detail here maybe in the maybe in part two but super awesome get a ton of pr can any brilliant computer scientists out there beat our algorithm by was it 10 percent? 10 percent. yep yep yeah everybody thinks that like it's gonna happen very quickly ends up taking like three years before it finally does get uh it's 2009 i think when the when the prize is finally awarded but anyway all this is happening blockbuster like they're still growing but they realize like the bricks and mortar business is is you know not long for this world online and we're now in the mid 2000s um they really need to go all in management decides on online and they think what is what is the one thing we have that we can beat netflix on they've realized that the turnaround time on rentals is super important and this is actually pretty brilliant they come up with this concept called that they market as total access which is essentially you sign up for yeah this is at the at the end you sign up for blockbuster online which is essentially just a netflix clone and the the extra that you get is you can now return your movies to any blockbuster store and exchange them for your next movies at the store. So this is like what Amazon is doing with, um, you know, Amazon go and prime now. And like, this is actually like pretty visionary. It, it's risky because it does involve a lot of capital, a lot of ops. Um, you know, it's, it's like people are very skeptical that this could work, but if it does, Netflix can't match it. They have no physical footprint. Um, and blockbuster has stores all across America. Netflix is super, super scared when this happens. This is in 2006. So scared that at Sundance in the beginning of 2007, um, well, and they, they get scared. It actually makes a huge impact. So Netflix growth flatlines. Not only do they stop growing, they start losing subscribers. Uh, this has never happened. Like, remember, they've just been adding subscribers, you know, quarter after quarter after quarter. It's like watching Snapchat or something. Totally. This is like, this is the Instagram stories <laughs> moment. Um, and they're so worried sundance 2007 reed hastings meets with the blockbuster ceo and he offers essentially a merger of the two companies and he says netflix will buy blockbusters online business from you for 600 million dollars so it'll be essentially like uh, i guess what's that like two-thirds netflix one-third blockbuster is the ratio i assume it would be all stock and blockbuster rejects it they're like no man we got you guys on the ropes we have a structural advantage you don't have we're back in the game and then history like turns on a knife point this is crazy like blockbuster was gonna win if they could execute this but carl eichen Oh my God. Oh my God. This is literally, this might be the worst self-inflicted wound in like the history of business. This makes like the Uber thing look (laughs) like child's play. Carl Icahn and the Blockbuster CEO get into right around this time, get into a huge fight over the CEO's annual bonus. 
and such oh a fight that the CEO resigns and and Iken pushes him out. Iken then hires a new CEO, this dude from 7-Eleven, who this guy... And, and to be clear, this is Iken scrutinizing the CEO's proposal for his and other executives' bonuses and saying, nope, I don't see why you should be paying yourself that much. Yep, exactly. And the Blockbuster CEO is like, I'm like successfully navigating this. I'm about to beat Netflix. They just capitulated. <laughs> they just offered a merger and I think I'm going to beat them. <laughs> and uh, the <laughs> this guy who Carl Icahn brings in, I don't even remember his name. It's not worth it. Basically, like we try to be pretty even and balanced on Acquired. This guy is a total idiot. Like he is a complete moron <laughs> this is this is like he doesn't he's, he says he doesn't believe in online businesses this is 2007 like it's pretty clear that online businesses are a thing google <laughs> has been public for three years like you know this is insanity he doesn't believe in online businesses he his plan he's going to totally defund blockbuster online he thinks netflix is a joke nobody's going to do it uh he wants to bring back the heyday of bricks and mortar wants to make bricks and mortar great again he wants to attract bring back coal david <laughs> uh, he wants to attract the kids to come to blockbuster stores by selling pizza and soda at the stores he has a plan for this he calls it rock the block <laughs> God, if you were Reed worst. Hastings, it's like you. It, this you is like a hear gift this news from and heaven. Just have your jaw drop and be like, "We're saved. We're, <laughs> is, we're saved." So here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. I remember this. I was working on Wall Street when this happened. Circuit City is like on the brink of bankruptcy. Uh, Best Buy f- does manage to survive this, but they're also at the brink of bankruptcy. Amazon is eating everybody's lunch. Again, online businesses, they work. The C- this new CEO of Blockbuster, he's like, we're going to buy Circuit City for a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> you literally cannot make this stuff up. And, and You know what's better than, than, than one failing business? You put two of them together. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to tie two anchors <laughs> together and drop them into the ocean. <laughs> Oh my God. It's, it's ridiculous. Everybody, it doesn't actually happen because even Carl Lycan is like, I'm not sure that's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, have you, have you been to one recently? Yeah. So basically everybody good at Blockbuster who was running the online business, they just resign. And it's crazy. Like in the book, they talk about the guy who was running the online business. He was really good. After all this happens, Reed Hastings calls him up and he's like, hey, let's like get dinner. And they get dinner and they talk about everything. And then he invites him out to Netflix. He does like a town hall at Netflix and they talk about the whole history and what Blockbuster Online was doing when Netflix was going. It's crazy. They all resign. We know what happens. Blockbuster goes bankrupt. All of the momentum they had around total access it just dies they defund the whole thing netflix wins and it's amazing because like all of this again once again netflix was at the brink of death a miracle happens all of the marketing all the buzz around total access for blockbuster that just brings so many more people of the mainstream in america into this market they all go to netflix so by spring of 2009 netflix now has 10 million subscribers they're thriving nobody's canceling during the recession they're on the top of the world. It's amazing. And that is where we're going to leave part one because there's another thing on the horizon coming. I thought Netflix was such a like stable, boring business. So not the case. You can't stay on your laurels for long because streaming is coming. What a good place to leave it. When we were going back and forth last night on where should we leave it? Should we, uh, should we go into Quickster or not? I'm really <laughs> glad that we, uh, uh, this feels like such a good place to, to hang. 
Oh, totally. I just like Circuit City. Circuit City. Ugh. I mean, again, like the worst. The worst. <laughs> um, uh, all right. I'm emotionally exhausted, but we have other sections. Should we do narratives? Yeah. Going into narratives, I want to recap just a couple things from reading the the S1 last night because I think they're interesting. Um, so they sold 27% of the company in this IPO, raised $82.5 million. No net income yet, all, only net losses, but about to have their first quarter of net income. The cap table is fascinating. So Reed Hastings owns 20% of the company, uh, which will get diluted down to about 15% after the IPO. TCV, Technology Crossover Ventures, in, in two different vehicles, I, I'm pretty sure I'm reading this right, has 46% of the company. Yeah, crazy. Pretty rare to see that at, at IPO, a single a diff- firm with, different uh, with era. that much ownership. Totally different era. You look at what they did there. They they were able to uh, to raise, you know, I think in that with including that second little offering, close to a hundred million dollars. They made no real promises in their S one about sort of what they were going to do with that in any sub- substantial way. They sort of just talked about they were going to spend on marketing, they were going to spend on improving the technology, they were going to increase the the selection that they had. I mean, it wasn't like when we talk about what did they do with this this capital they run a flywheel business so they just had to pour more money into the flywheel and and have more money to be able to accelerate it you know in in looking back we we tend to do these this narrative section where we do bulls and bears unlike other times like facebook or like the net the um snap ipo it's not like there were people writing these articles of of doom and gloom i mean it was pretty hey this thing seems to be going pretty well it's pretty disruptive it's not clear if it's going to work yet but they're ipoing and it's not a huge ipo well to jump into the bear case here all that's true. And like, yeah, I mean, if you really looked at it, like this was a really good business. I mean, there was potential headwinds in the future of Oh, yeah, it was, it was it was one of the only tech companies because uh, people just watched all these dot coms go bust. It was one of the only tech companies that was posting, you know, nice financials and was about to be profitable. I mean, it was like this huge, you know, wow, it's a real business. You should buy it. Yeah. But I think the bear case is is. Yeah, people are just still so, you know, God, <laughs> human psychology hangover from the the IPO crash. They're all like, oh, this CEO like was the largest merger in, you know, Silicon Valley history in the bubble era. And now like you guys are losing money and like I don't believe in online businesses, you know. <laughs> and also, to be fair, a fair bear case was, I don't know, don't count out Blockbuster. And as we've seen, Blockbuster very well could have won here. Um, you know, hard to know. But yeah, the bull case, like you said, like this is a good business subscription businesses like that could be a thing if if they work if you can get them to work they can be very challenging to scale but like this is why cable companies are so good and cable companies will come back up in part two uh of the episode like if you can get consumers locked into paying you a certain amount every month like you can build a very stable very predictable very good cash flow business around that yep all right what would have happened otherwise Let's do it. I struggle to find any other way that this could have worked out for Netflix. I mean, they either would have ended up part of Amazon, and I'm not sure they would have maintained the brand, part of Blockbuster, and they would have killed it. That would have been a takeout. Carl Aiken. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Um, if they hadn't 
opportunistically raise some cash right before they thought they were going to IPO, then they probably wouldn't have weathered the storm. If they didn't IPO when they did, then they probably wouldn't be able to um, properly fight Blockbuster. If they didn't do the 40% layoff, like, you know, yeah, just a lot of things went their way here. Companies, it's skill and luck. Yeah, totally, totally. I I think maybe there is a world where they could have kept, delayed the IPO longer you know, they were at profitability. I, that would have been the wrong decision, I think, because Blockbuster was coming into the market. And a- access to capital in the private markets didn't exist like it exists today. Yep, totally. Yep, they had to do this. Yeah. Tech themes? Let's do it. Um, the first one that I'm thinking of is like, and it, we've beat this to death on this episode, so it's not going to be like surprising to anyone, but Tabula Rasa, if you come up to me and said, what wave did Netflix take advantage of to to really launch them as a company? I'd be like, streaming. But like <laughs> the fact that DVDs were a wave is still a little bit mind-blowing to me that I, I it, it's just very, uh, I think how fast as humans we forget the very recent past and what was uh, a big deal and what wasn't is is striking. Totally. And yeah, just timing, like, not only a big wave, but like Netflix timed it so perfectly. Um, and this is why we ended up breaking this episode into two. Like these are two different businesses, the DVD part of Netflix and well, foreshadowing Quickster. They really are two different businesses. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know you can still go to DVD? Oh, actually, they, so they bought the domain. Netflix has DVD.com. Uh-huh, um, no and way. You can go and access their DVD offering there. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. I wonder. I mean, there still are people who... I think they still have a few million DVD subscribers to this day. I think, and interestingly enough, from DVD.com, this is how muddled this stuff gets. You can rent Blu-rays. <laughs> what about Divix? <laughs> doubtful. Uh, doubtful. Um, okay, I have a couple. The biggest one, though, we we glossed over a lot of stuff as we had to in this story. Um, this is part of why we're doing our LP program and, and bonus services to get deeper into like who are the people that like actually build these things? And what are the decisions along the way that like operationally help make all this happen? But one thing that, again, we didn't get to cover as much in this episode that I think is an interesting theme, both across Amazon and Netflix is that the people in finance and marketing, and we did talk about McCarthy at at Netflix at these first generation internet companies were so good. Like, Barry McCarthy, Joy Covey at Amazon, uh, Leslie Kilgore, who ran marketing, analytical marketing at Netflix. Like we didn't get to talk about her, but there are so many people that are just like really, really, really good. They tended to come from um, like the CPG world, like from Procter and Gamble. And I think that's where Leslie Kilgore came from. I could be wrong on that. But there are a bunch of these folks at Amazon, a bunch of these folks in Netflix, um, and they're just so good. And I feel like that's like a that's like a piece of DNA that's now missing in the Valley is like this combination of finance and marketing, you know, and there's like growth quote unquote, which is sort of the successor to this, but, um, cowboy marketing. Yeah. It's become so cowboy and it's become also just so dependent on Google and Facebook. Like, although the good growth people would find ways and tell you that their way isn't right. on Google and Facebook. Right. And there are still, ways to, there are still good people, yeah. but you know, this is the, Barry McCarthy modeling out Netflix's online business to a T. Like he knew what month they were going to have to raise prices. The the Netflix program with consumer manufacturers uh, of of uh, consumer electronics manufacturers to put the coupons in the boxes and modeling out exactly what was that was going to cost, exactly what their growth rate was going to be. You know the going population uh, not um subscriber center by subscriber center with the with the one day delivery being driven by where 
word of mouth is occurring, like all that stuff, like that's the company building stuff that built Netflix into like a great business. And Amazon did the same thing. So that's what I wanted to call out here. I have two trends that I want to call out that were uh, stated in the S1, because one of the things you commonly see in these S1s is it's an area called trends, but it's basically why should you believe that the wind is at our backs? And one is one that I hadn't really thought about that much, which was the very first one they call out is the shift to viewing in home instead of in theaters. And I had forgotten about this because this was like in the era, I think it was a little bit before the era where piracy really accelerated people not going to movie theaters but there was already a trend where people were like gosh why you know i can go rent it at blockbuster why would i you know i'll I'll wait to see it on video and it'll be cheap on video and this was killing movie theaters but this trend was starting to accelerate and that was one thing that they cited that was like look no matter how people are renting movies like they're watching them at home and that's really helpful for us which i thought was interesting and the other that they cited was in uh, slightly different words, but the paradox of choice, that it was really hard. So there's one of two things will happen. You go to Blockbuster and you're mad that there's not enough selection or the movie that you want is out. Okay, if you go anywhere where there's infinite selection, then it's an, it's too hard to choose what movie that you want to watch. But they had Cinematch, and the Cinematch algorithm was really good at telling you what movie you probably want to watch next. And so they actually cited that as a sort of trend and advantage to Netflix in their, their S1 to shareholders, which was interesting. And I've got a few more, but we're going to save those for part two. All right. Should we grade this? And we're going to grade the IPO here. Yeah. So I was thinking about this and I'm like, okay, let, let's say they didn't, because we've already covered like they, they needed the IPO to have the cash to be able to win the war that they won and they were close to losing the war against Blockbuster. So even that aside, okay, why IPO? What's the point of that? You've got the, the, the cash position they're sitting in is 15 million in the bank. They're not going to be profitable this quarter, but maybe the next and it's going to be super thin. So like you need cash from somewhere. Why does this business need cash and what is the flywheel? I think the flywheel is more spend gets you more customers, which gives you more leverage with content providers, which isn't really a huge factor in their business yet. But there, there's got to be. be some <laughs> element of, yeah, buying, you know, they're already buying DVDs in mass. So they sort of need to be able to um, do that to serve more customers. And you can buy deeper in the tail when you have more customers. They eventually do do deals with um, movie studios as they get bigger to buy DVDs at a discount. Yep. So that gets you more and better content, which then makes you able to inherently that improves the product offering, which then lets you go get more customers. And so, I mean, it really, it's, it's a flywheel business that they're, they're raising cash to pour onto it. So competitive stuff aside, they should have just gone out and raised as much as they possibly could have to be able to fuel that, that flywheel faster. They sold 27% of the business. Like, good move. I mean, it's not like they could have raised any more and it doesn't feel like the stock price could have been any higher given the uh, macroeconomic climate they were in. So the way I look at this, they raised the most money they could, which was the good idea. Even if they didn't need it for competitive reasons, which they did, it it, it was a good idea timing wise and, uh, and amount wise. So you know, it's not an A plus for me because those are reserved for exceptional circumstances, but this is a solid A. Yeah, I think... One thing I wanted to add on to the the flywheel aspect, we thought about this a lot at Rover, actually, um, which is not a subscription business, but has some of the same dynamics. With a business like this subscription business, once you grow to a certain point, as you're growing, you're spending a ton of money on customer acquisition, bringing new people in. And as we talked about in the early stages of the market, so much of the market has yet to come. 
there comes a point where you flip from all of that money that you're spending on customer acquisition, you're not making that back in terms of the revenue you're getting from your subscribers. You're spending more than the money you're getting back. But at a certain point in the market, in the adoption phase, that flips where you are now, you're still spending as fast as you can, but your subscriber space is so big, they're generating so much cash that you now, like your economics tip over into the positive. Once that happens, you can super quickly go from like a, you know, cash burning business, as we saw to like an incredibly immensely profitable, immensely big moat, because for anybody else to come compete with you, they'd have to spend the same amount that you spent along the way to get there. Um, now, Blockbuster could credibly do that. Amazon could credibly do that, but nobody else could. And once Netflix did that, that's when as far as the DVD business concerned, it was concerned, uh, that's when they tipped into like, we are a awesome business, it's very stable cash flows. It's the same thing with cable companies. This is how they work uh, or worked. So yeah, I think it was like they absolutely needed that capital to do that. I think, yeah, I debate A or A minus. Um, certainly A range because they needed to, they executed, it was great, they did what they had to do. It's just the market conditions were so bad <laughs> that like selling that much of the company, like, you know, um, so, so not ideal, but I don't think they really had any other choice. So I don't know, A or A minus. All right, carve outs? Carve outs. Okay, so mine, uh, I'll go uh, quickly. Uh, I can't believe it's taken me this long to read and then recommend uh, N.K. Jemison's sci-fi trilogy, The Broken Earth Trilogy. These books are amazing. Amazing. If you haven't read them yet, if you're a sci-fi fan, even if you're not a sci-fi fan. So three books in the trilogy. Each one of them, the first one won the Hugo Award in 2015, I think. Uh, 15 or 16. The second one won the Hugo Award the next year. The third one won the Hugo Award the following year. So, so, so good. Um, and just like a perfect societal commentary for, you know, the era we're into where like it's a, a persecuted people have an immense power that uh, can save the world, uh, but they're persecuted and like, so you have to give head. Anyway, it's really, really good. Must read. I have one. <laughs> I had a list of articles that I've read recently that I thought were good. And then I was like, you know, I should do one that's just like something kind of fun. And I thought it was going to be completely unrelated to the episode, but uh, I'm now realizing it's not at all. There's a Netflix show that I've been watching called The Good Place. And uh, it's with Kristen Bell. It is really goofy, but really good and really good sort of just like popcorn, uh, you know, watch it for a half hour before you fall asleep. It's that it's it's basically like a, a heaven and hell uh, thing where Kristen Bell lands in the good place and she's looking around and she's like, oh, cool, I'm in the good place. So I'm not in the bad place then. And she's like talking to the administrator of the good place. And it's it's just like it's very tongue in cheek, but um really good and uh, uh when i picked it i didn't realize that it was a netflix show but um <laughs> netflix original content coming soon and in, in, in the next episode awesome this is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies crusoe so crusoe as listeners know by now is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for ai workloads NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. 
Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the Internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. If you like listening to Acquired and you just want more or you want to help us support the show and and uh, make it even better and somehow we just keep doing more deeper research and um, I've been super, super excited about the guests we've had on. So if you want to help us do more of that, uh, you can become a limited partner. So go to Kimberlite.fm. That's K-I-M-B-E-R-L-I-T-E dot F-M slash Acquired or click the link in the show notes to join. Thanks, everyone. And we will uh, see you next time. We'll see you next time with part two. Thank you.